0: that often lead to disfigurement high death rate these are all symptoms of what is one of the world's most famous or should i say infamous diseases all right the disease is smallpox now we don't hear much about it anymore because the world did something pretty great they came together for a common good you see, let me, let me backtrack a little bit. This disease was highly contagious, and it quickly spread and affected people worldwide. No country was safe. No people group was safe. There were outbreaks that would upend economic systems with devastating disruptions. There are certain uh, indigenous peoples that were nearly wiped out completely when European settlers first introduced the disease to their uh, people groups. But this disease did not have the final say because there was a new technology. See, in 1796, Edward Jenner noticed that milkmaids who worked closely with cows had actually, because of their work, contracted cowpox. And these milkmaids who had contracted cowpox seemed to be immune to smallpox. So Jenner deliberately infected a boy with cowpox. There's some ethical questions there that need to be addressed. Just because we can doesn't mean we should, okay? Let me acknowledge that elephant. But he does, and believe it or not, the boy became immune to smallpox. Thus, we have the beginning of this new technology called the vaccine, where you could get a shot with a disease that would prevent a worse disease. Right? And this took years to kind of be developed and, and to catch on. But eventually, there was a new collaboration. So you've got the disease, the technology, and the collaboration. And this collaboration came through the World Health Organization. Right, And see, it wasn't enough just to have a cure, that we needed to get the cure to everyone who needed it. So in 1967, the World Health Organization launched a worldwide eradication campaign. All right. They they worked across borders, across languages, and across all, many other divides, and they used intense vaccination efforts, surveillance, and rigorous containment of outbreaks. And they used these tools to attack smallpox head on. And thanks to this effort, A mere 13 years later in 1980, smallpox was declared eradicated from the world. So much so that even our kids now aren't required to get the annual vaccines because it is only contained in small populations and it's controlled if it appears, and it's also contained in a lab somewhere, all right? Completely eradicated. When humanity can manage to look past its differences and work together, amazing feats can be accomplished. The eradication of smallpox is just one example of how this good can come from human progress, how human progress can accomplish great good. But, Is human progress always good? There are plenty of examples. I'm not going to go into details of all of them, but let's just list a few. Atomic bombs, climate change, biological warfare, all advances in technology, all human progress, all deadly and harmful. Today we look at one of the most influential stories ever for thinking about human progress. That's it. If you haven't figured out yet, we're looking at the Tower of Babel, all right, or Babel. I've said it both my whole life. There's no telling how it's going to come out this morning, okay? We've got the Tower of Babel. Much like our experience with smallpox, there's a disease, a collaboration, a new technology, but there are some very significant differences. And I think there's a lot we can learn about human progress and how it affects our story. For instance, the new technology in Babel is that of bricks. If you read Genesis 11.3, which is 11 is where this story starts. It says, they said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. This is a new technology. Up to this point, it's been all stone. Stone is expensive. It's hard. You can't reproduce it. You kind of have to cut it down. There's lots of waste, but not with bricks. Bricks are strong and sturdy, just like stone, but unlike those rocks, They are uniform in size, reproducible, and cost-efficient. This changed the world. Then there's the collaboration. We see in Genesis 11, 1 and 2, that they were one people with one goal. It says, the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. So you've got the new technology, you've got the collaboration, but what is the disease? Now, if you grew up in the church, the chances are you know the answer, right? The disease is sin. It's pride. We've heard this story over and over again, right? They wanted to build this tower to the heavens. Verse 4 says, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. It's easy for us to walk into that verse, walk into the story that we heard over and over again, that they, their disease was sin. And the truth is, that's right. But if you take a step back and you try to let go of all the childhood stories you heard growing up about the Tower of Babel, and instead you just kind of read it for what it is, it almost feels like you take away the Sunday school bias and there's this group of people trying to organize themselves to begin the process of building a great nation. That doesn't sound so bad. Right, It kind of sounds like, dare I say it, I don't know, our American forefathers, you know, that we wear the American flag, say the Pledge of Allegiance, sing the National Anthem, the 4th of July, we wear the flag and the red, white, and blue, we praise that kind of behavior now. Right, And that's what's going on here. You've got, you've got this example of brotherly, public-spirited social, society dedicated to building and, and making everything new and great. In fact, I read multiple articles, one of them in The, the Atlantic this past week, that, that understood the Babel story like this. You've got a people group who's coming together for a common good to build this nation. Why is that so bad? We see that in the story of Babel, it's it's about this community of, of unified builders, and they had the ability to work together. But then when they came together for this common good, kind of like our small box story, it seems like they challenged God for supremacy. So we see God neutralize a threat. Is that what's going on here? I mean if we read verses six and seven it says, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is the only be- this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they do and nothing they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language, so that they may not be under so that they may not understand one another's speech. Was God's punishment more of a threat neutralization? Was God worried about how powerful humanity could become? And if the consequences of Babel's sin was to scatter their language, does that mean that the different languages we see in the world today are actually bad? A result of a curse? I think the answer to all those questions is no. Let me get that out of the way up front. But it does drive me deeper into the text. It leaves me with questions that I want to unpack and understand, right? Like what was, what exactly was the sin of Babel? Why did God punish them as he did? And how does this fit in with the whole Bible as a whole, as a story? And then what does that have to do with me? Right, So I hope that by diving into this text today that we can answer some of these questions. If you're, in fact, if you're reading through the Bible, like from beginning to end, if you're reading just through the book of Genesis, there's this dilemma, a problem that happens with 11.1. 1. When it says that they, now the whole, word, the whole world had one language and the same words, in our mind, if you're reading straight through, you just finished Genesis 10, this raises the question like, hold on, I thought they had different languages. Because if we go back to Genesis 10 5, it says, From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with their own language, by their clans in their nations. So 10 says we have different people groups, different languages from different parts of the world. And verse 11, or chapter 10 starts off, they were one people with one language. Something's going on here. Something that should raise our, our mind and our mind and say, you know what, I've got to go there. I've got to understand this a little bit deeper. See, chapter 10 is post flood. We talked about the flood towards the beginning of this series, okay? It's post flood. And God gives Noah the, the command that he gave Adam and Eve, right? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. In Genesis 10, you've got what they call the, the table of nations. You've got the, the long genealogies. All right, I'm not going to read it this morning, okay? But you've got these genealogies about how God's people accomplished that, how they multiplied and spread and filled the earth. So you've got that picture, multiple languages, diversity, different people groups. And then in verse 11, there's only one language. So which is it? Are they speaking many languages or are they speaking one language. Now, I did lots of reading, and I went out to a lot of my common uh, source material that I uh, find helpful, and I found myself not convinced. So I kept digging, and I found a scholar named Dr. Ari lamb He's a Jewish scholar, okay, but he is an expert, a leading expert in the Hebrew language and the Hebrew text. So a lot of what I'm about to unpack, it, it comes directly from him. And he points out that you have to go to the original language. And, it, and when you go to the original language, it, it brings up some real points that, that help us understand what's going on here. Now, if you're like me, if you're like me, sometimes this can be overwhelming right? You've got this new language. Okay, so the Bible is originally in Hebrew and Greek, and I don't know Hebrew and Greek, so how am I supposed to read and understand Scripture if that's going to lead? The point is, the Bible was never meant to be read alone. All right, it is a text written to a group of people. You should read it. You should meditate on it, but it should also be taken in in community. Okay, I don't speak or read Hebrew. I took a little bit of Greek in college, but I mostly re- rely on resources. Okay, and you can do the same. Faithlife.com. It's a free study Bible. It'll give you the Hebrew and the Greek when you need to know it. All right, and you can go deeper from there. But the Bi- the point is, the Bible was meant to be read in community. So don't be overwhelmed when I start talking about the original language, all right? Here's what Dr. Lamb points out. First, he talks about that new technology. Remember we were talking about bricks? Okay, the bricks in here is a illusion that is cast all throughout the Old Testament. And almost every time it is used in the Old Testament, it is an illusion to slavery. So you think about this is the first time we see it, the next time we see it is in Exodus when uh, Pharaoh is b- talking about the slaves and he uses this word brick saying that we need to force the Israelites while in slavery to find their own source material to meet their brick quotas. It's a, it's a pointing towards exploitative power, right? Brick making in the ancient world, and especially in the scale that we see here in Babel and Pharaoh, could only be accomplished through slavery. It was not, it needed labor, and it was not something that societies could be um, to profit off of if they spent a bunch of money on the making of bricks. So it was almost always slave labor, forced labor. And so this immediate call, this immediate. Call to brick making should take us and say, You know what? I'm reading all of scripture, I'm betting on it together. There's something deeper going on here. This isn't the only allusion to slavery in this one verse, in verse three. It also says, Come, let us make bricks. This word come, it means uh, it's listed eight times other than this point in the Bible story. And almost all of those times, it means to give, except. When it means come, it is always talking about taking advantage of somebody. Come, let us make bricks is pointing towards slavery. There's a uh, passage again with Pharaoh in Genesis 38 where it says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them. that same word normally means to give, but here when talking about slavery and dealing shrewdly with slavery, it means come. There's another time in... uh, uh, this is in Genesis thirty-eight sixteen. sorry. This is in Genesis 13, 38, 16, where the word means come, and it's talking about soliciting a prostitute that nearly gets killed. This is taking someone with the intent to control, harm, and or use them. What's going on here when we get deep into the text, and specifically just verse 3, we see that this building of a city and of a tower is not about human progress. It's about human power. And it's not just the power of the humans grasping at the power of God, which is what we've always talked about. They're building this tower to the heavens, right? But it's about them gaining power over other humans. But there's more. If you keep going and if you go back to verse one, where we were talking about our first question about there being a one language the, other, the only other time in the Hebrew Bible where it uses this word one comes when Jacob's sons are negotiating with the clan of Shem about how to merge their respective families. All right? They say to Shem, we will dwell with you and become one people. And that's Genesis 34, 16. So you've got two peoples connecting across differences. Sounds great, right? Wrong. <laughs> Jacob's sons had this conversation under deep duress. Shem had actually raped their sister and held her captive. They were hoping to rescue her and punish those who had committed the crime. Shem's eagerness to become a one nation with Jacob's family was a shiny lie covering up assault. Now, I know that was deep in the weeds, all right? If you zoned out, that's okay. Come back to me, all right? I want to sum it up like this. We move through it quickly, we're kind of looking at ancient texts, but this is, what it, this is the gist of it. On the surface, Babel appears nice and wonderful, a society in which everyone has come together to build something great. But beneath the surface surface, we see it's much worse. It's exploitive power. It's pharaoh, it's shim, it's evil. It's actually the birth of empire, which we don't have time to get into this, but empire throughout all of scripture is condemned. Empire is the power of one people over another. We see it here in Babel. We see it later in Rome and Egypt and Rome. And then in Revelation, it's condemned. It says that this, the empires are going to be destroyed in the fire. So we know that this is a, this, this is not just the golden age of mutual language. This is forced uniformity. This is backtracking. This is a regression back to p- before Genesis 10. It's an attempt to get rid of diversity in order to promote one people group. It's forced labor. It's the promise of peace and prosperity, but only for those who have power. Anybody in here... Uh, um, Transformers fan, right? The comic books, all that stuff. Now, I'm going to be honest. I haven't read any of the comic books. I've seen the movies at least once, okay? So I don't know a lot about it, but I do know know that the bad guys are the Decepticons, right? And the bad guys have this phrase, at least in the movies, is that, uh, what is it? Peace through tyranny, Peace through tyranny. They are, they are mad, they're upset, and they feel like the only way to have peace is if they are in complete control. So they're like, you obey us, you come under our rule, or we destroy you. And their goal is like, once we destroy everybody who is against us, then we will have peace. You guys remember learning about the Pax Romana in school, history fans? All right, I'm going to bore you a little bit, all right? So Pax Romana is the Roman peace. It's like 200 years of peace for Rome. And it's actually unbelievable that there was this long of a reign with peace at this time. And so it's kind of praised for for, uh, how Rome was able to work and keep this peace during this time. It's considered a golden age, and it's pretty remarkable to historians. But then you take a deep dive. And when you take a deep dive into this time frame, you realize that it wasn't really marked by peace for anybody except for Roman imperialism, right? The people in power had the peace. It was actually centuries marked with constant war and bloodshed, Conform to the Roman way or die, and that's how they maintained peace. That is what's going on in Babel, that the Decepticons, the Pax Romana, it's obey us, be like us, do what we're doing, and we can achieve peace. Peace through tyranny. Peace through ruling over other people. Peace by promoting ourselves over other humans. Babel was doing the very thing that they were not creating progress. They were creating power at the expense of other humans. So here's what we need to know. The way you treat people matters. The way you treat people matters. It doesn't matter how good your end goal is. If you have to step on or over somebody to achieve that goal, you are in sin. It doesn't matter how much they have inconvenienced us. It doesn't matter how much they have tested our patience. It doesn't matter how wrong they are and how right we are. Treating others without respect is treating them without human decency, and it's a direct tie back to the exploitation that happened in Babel. If our mindset, if it's for my better good and they don't matter, that is sin. And that truth should challenge the way we think about so many aspects of our life. It should challenge the way we think and talk about politics. The goal is not for our own comfort and our own success, for our own nation to be great. Might have stepped on some toes, I don't know. But the goal is how can we lift up and serve our brothers and sisters both around the world and across the table? It should challenge the way we, we do our own work. The goal is, is not your success and your achievements, but the goal is how you can best serve those around you. This means if you're in customer service, and I know a lot of us in here are, the way you treat your customers, even the difficult ones, it matters. If you have people who are under your authority, the way you treat them matters. Listen, we should have Christians in leadership because Christians in leadership should treat the people under their authority differently, promoting their well-being and their growth. But it's not just the people under your authority. It should affect the way you treat the people who you are under authority of. That's right. The boss the company that you don't like how can you best serve them now i'm not saying you should b- blindly follow <clears throat> evil all right mlk served this country through civil disobedience all right he saw injustice he refused to cooperate with that injustice he faced the penalty and the consequences of that justice and he did it peacefully and without compromising truth all right you can serve and still be bold and defy evil. But we should have the mindset of the betterment of those who are over us in everything we say and do. This idea of how we treat people matters should affect every area of our life. It should affect the way we build relationships. And in order to get into this, we can go and answer one of our other questions about why did God punish them the way he did? Let's read verse four again. It says, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Babel wanted the power. They wanted the control. And this explains their greatest fear, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. They did not want to be thinned out. They did not want to be diverse. They did not want to be sent out, which is a direct disobedience of God's command to to multiply and fill the earth. Not only was their sin exploiting other humans, but it was also direct disobedience of God's original instruction. Humanity had been given the mandate, multiply and fill the earth. We see that mandate happening in Genesis 10. And in Genesis 11, we see an attempt to thwart that plan. Babel is an attempt at peace by getting rid of diversity or at least forcing the diverse population into slave labor. Once again, we see humanity attempting to thwart God's plan for our own glory. It's a repeat of the sin in the garden, and it's a repeat of the sin of the people before the flood, and here we have the next big story, and it's the same thing over and over again. Now, this is important to notice because it shows us something that I want to I lock into, right? Diversity was not a result of curse. Diversity was a part of the original design. Yes, the Bible starts with everybody being the same. You've got Adam and Eve in the garden, but they're given the same command that Noah is given to fill the earth and multiply. And this does not happen without humanity diversifying. Humanity expands, there are new resources, there are new climates, there's new terrain. All of these things affect the way people look, the way they communicate, and the way they live. God's original plan included humanity that looked different. They had different style, different skin color, different languages. Diversity was the plan. Separation was not division. Separation was expansion. It's the way that our modern families work. Like I had to separate from my family to me and Mary Lauren, and she separates from her family. We're still a part of the, those greater families, but we separated and expanded our family twice. Okay, so there's this there's this sense of separation does not mean division until that separation is attempted to be thwarted by Babel, and now that division or now that that separation that diversity becomes. Division. In Babel, God doesn't create new languages. God comes in and moves in a way that means the new languages are not understood. It is my understanding that the original change in languages did not come with a lack of understanding. Just because humanity would speak many languages, that does not mean they would not understand one another, and I'll unpack that more later. Babel is an attempt to remove uh, Babel. The curse of Babel is, an, is the uh, removing the ability to m- c- communicate with one another. Wow. Okay. The curse is an inability to communicate and understand each other. It's just like a curse that Adam and Eve d- received in the garden. It was never the intention to not be able to understand but it was the intention to be diverse. This is important because it means that the speaking of different languages is not a bad thing. The goal for Christians is not to get everyone to look and act the same. All of your friends should not look like you. They shouldn't sound like us. They shouldn't dress like us. If they do, I pray that the Holy Spirit is convicting you like he has convicted me. It's challenging me to cross my comfort zones and build relationships with people who are across the divide, who look different than me, sound different than me, have a different culture than me, speak even a different language than me. We live in a day with new technology that allows us to cross those language borders with a simple phone you have in your pocket. I've actually used it almost daily at the bank now, right? A customer walks in and all they speak is Spanish and they're trying to tell me what's going on. And I literally, I don't even know if I'm allowed to do this. I just did it one day and now I do it every day as I pull out Google Translate, (laughs) all right? And, And I speak into my phone and then they can speak into their phone. Sometimes they even speak into my phone and it translates and I can read what they're saying, right? We can cross those borders. We have the tools and the resources we need. I'm pretty sure Duolingo is free. Right, you can learn a new language. We can we can build relationships with people who look, talk, sound, act different than we do, and that was the plan from the beginning. We are walking in the original promise when we do that. So, what does this teach us? about Jesus? How does the story of Babel fit into the whole narrative of Scripture? I'm coming to an end. I know this has been kind of deep, but this is really cool, so focus in with me here, okay? Zephaniah, which this may very very well be the the only time I've ever referenced Zephaniah in a message, okay? It's a little prophet book that we don't read a lot or talk about, but in Zephaniah 3.9, it says this, "'For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech,' that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. This is a prophecy about a time when God will not just redeem the nation of Israel, but he will redeem all of the nations, all of humanity. A day when all sin will be removed, all creation will be redeemed. A day when the empire or Babel will be thrown into the fire and destroyed. And on that day, their speech will be made pure. Now I'm going back to Dr. Lamb here because this is really cool pure speech in Hebrew. Hebrew doesn't use vowels, okay? So this word for pure speech is spelled B-I-I in the English letters, okay? B-I-I. Now, if we go back to our story in Babel, it says that God confuses their language, and then they are called Babel, right? So you have this confused language, this Babel language, and the word for Babel language is actually spelled B-R-R, Different words, pretty similar, B-I-I, B-R-R. Now, here's the fun part. Now, I would have known this if it weren't for someone else, okay? But when you speak Hebrew, B-I-I and B-R-R sound the exact same. So pure speech is a direct tie back to Babel speech. It's a pun. It's a, the, the Bible's being funny, all right? It's a humorous play. Here, here's what's happened. The promise in Zephaniah is not that everyone will be speaking the same language. That's not pure speech. The promise is the reverse of the Babel curse. There will be a day when we speak our own language and we understand the language of others. Let's fast forward to Revelation 7-9. John is writing about the day when Jesus returns and redeems all of creation. He says this, After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language, which no one could number, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, and they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb." Do you see it? Every nation, every language, every tribe, they're all praising the Redeemer, King Jesus, and John understood every one of them. In their own language, they're crying out with this symphony, saying salvation belongs to our God seated on the throne, the Lamb who was sacrificed for our sin, the King that laid down his life, that all people could be saved from the tyranny of sin, and they're all crying out with their own language but it's all understood. Sin caused a divide. Jesus defeated that sin. Jesus, just like he reversed the curse of the garden, he reverses the curse of Babel. When he rose, we are given the first fruits of the kingdom. We know that one day we too will rise with him. And thanks to Jesus's Thanks to Jesus on the cross, we can experience that kingdom here and now. Check this out, okay? This this is really cool. Bible nerd with me for a minute, okay? After Jesus dies and raises from the grave and ascends into heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit to fill and empower his followers. You know the story. This is Pentecost. They're gathered in the upper room. Acts 2.6 says that when the sound occurred, a crowd came together, and listen to this, and was confused because each one heard them speaking his own language. Now we have confusion, not because they don't understand, but confused because they do understand. We see the reversal of Babel here at the beginning of the church. The language being spoken is not their own language, but they're all from every region, from all the people groups from all over the world have gathered for this festival and they hear the gospel in their own language. The Bible is so cool, all right? The Babel sin turns diversity into into division. Zephaniah tells us that that division, but not the diversity, will be erased. Revelation gives us a picture of what that will look like. And the gospel tells us that Jesus is the one who defeats sin, reverses the curse. And Acts teaches us that through the power of the spirit, we can walk in diverse, Unity, even now, on this side of eternity. Crossing the differences that divide us is extremely difficult, but it's not something you do on your own. It is something the Holy Spirit does in you. Notice at Pentecost how the church did not grow and become a global church. The church began as a global movement of God. They didn't start speaking the same language. They didn't just all stay there in the same location. They didn't all change it to so that they could dress the like and live in the same place. They didn't concentrate their power. They left to return back home, now carrying with them the Holy Spirit, giving them a new collaboration, a new mission, not to make their name great, but to make the name of God great. It is through the power of the spirit and to the glory of the triune God, may we do the same. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 4. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as we were called to one hope in which we were called to one Lord with one faith and one baptism, one God and the father of all who is over all and through all and in all. May we glorify Christ by being a diverse yet unified body of followers. Let's pray.